Well, we're near the end of Mark chapter 8 this morning, so why don't you start off, grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 8 right now. These last verses in chapter 8 are familiar to us, especially those who have been in the church for some time. But these words were incredibly shocking to the 12 disciples the first time they heard it. In this passage, Jesus announces to them a huge twist that they did, they did not see coming, and it just floors them. In our culture, we are familiar with many stories that are known for their shocking twists. After reading Romeo and Juliet for the first time, who would have guessed that the two star-crossed lovers did not end up together, but that the story ends with a poison-induced double suicide? When that story first came out, it was quite a scandalous ending, but now we're pretty familiar with that. We've heard that before. Or to use a more modern analogy, after the first Star Wars came out in 1977, no one suspected any sort of relationship between the arc villain Darth Vader and the underdog hero Luke Skywalker. And so three years later, when the second movie came out, audiences were genuinely shocked and surprised to learn that Darth Vader was, in fact, Luke Skywalker's father. You know, we, we all know that. We've heard that a million times. In fact, the whole idea of two enemies secretly being related is, is played out now because of that. But originally, it was quite the shocker. And the same thing, in a way, has happened to the story of Jesus. It has largely lost its shock value. For billions of people around the world, even those who aren't Christians, there's no surprise ending to the story of Jesus. They know how it ends. They know that he dies on a cross in the end. It's one of the, if not the, best-known events in history. But the cross was also the most shocking event in history. Not anymore, of course, we're so used to it, we've heard it so many times, but to its original audience, the shock value that Jesus delivered with the cross was really unprecedented. And for us today, we're no longer surprised or shocked by what happened to Jesus, but it is incredibly important that you know why, at least, it originally was so shocking. What happened to Jesus was a scandal in the truest sense of the word. And if you don't know why, you're missing part of the gospel message, part of what makes it such good news. And today, especially with the text we have, we're going to find out why that's the case. We want to discover the scandal of the cross. And Jesus tells us about it himself in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And before we get in briefly, let me give you a quick update and recap on where we are. We're in the third and final year of Christ's ministry And he's just now starting to take the first steps toward Jerusalem where he will go and die. Surprise, surprise. In the moment, though, he's the furthest away from Jerusalem that you can be and still be in the Holy Land. He's up north in Caesarea Philippi. But from here on out, he's going to be leading his disciples on a slow death march south to Jerusalem. In the meantime, he spends his time alone with them, instructing them, discipling them, telling them what is going to come to pass. Last week, though, if you were here, we witnessed a real breakthrough. It's a major passage. Jesus, he draws this line in the sand and he asks his disciples about himself. He says, who do you say that I am? We know what the world thinks at the time. Oh, he's just another prophet, another forerunner. But he he asks them, who do you say that? I am. Peter steps up to answer on behalf of the twelve. He cuts through all the fear and the doubt and the pressures of the world. And he confesses, you are the Christ. 
You're the Son of God. You're the divine Messiah. It's not the first time the disciples have ever had ever thought this or heard this, but it, it was the first time that they confessed this with a, a boldness and a confidence. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, which we did last week, it represents the end of the debate about the identity of Jesus among Christ's disciples. They're sold on him. They don't fully understand his mission. They don't really know what's about to happen. But they, they, they're counting on him. They have faith in him. He's the one. It's a real high point in the career of the disciples. It's worthy of commendation. And he does commend them. He says, after Peter confesses him, Blessed are you. And likewise, all are blessed who confess Jesus as the Christ. But this is where the first of many shocking twists comes into play. Because immediately after this high point, we hit a low point. And immediately after the disciples, they get Jesus so right, they get Jesus so wrong. And immediately after Peter is called blessed, he is called satanic. And all of this is because immediately after Jesus accepts this confession that he is the Christ, he tells them what the Christ came to do. And it just blows their mind. This is too shocking. They can't handle this. They, they don't believe it. The twist is too much for them to, to handle. And they don't know how to react. Now what Jesus says to them, to us, it's no surprise, it's no shock. We've heard this before. But it's so important that you transport yourselves back in time. You put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of the disciples and you, you sense the real shock value of his words to them. The first time they've ever heard anything like this. You need to get the shock of the cross and the scandal because that becomes later a part of the good news, the gospel. And today that's our goal. That's what we want to find. We want to take a closer look at Christ's familiar revelation to his disciples. We want to understand why, why was it so breathtaking to them? Why was it so hard to believe? And through this, we want to better behold and appreciate the wisdom of God. And to the world, the things of God, the plan of God, it's just foolishness. Always has been just foolish. But to those who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. And we want to see this wisdom with a clearer vision this morning. So we're going to dive a little deeper. It's a short passage, but trust me, there's plenty to see. So let's begin by reading along. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. After this confession that he's the Christ, verse 31 continues. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. It's quite the passage. And right before this, the disciples, they had just finally and fully come to terms with the true identity of Jesus. He, he truly is. He, he's the guy. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior. He's the one we've been waiting for. So it's great. And so what did that mean? It meant that the kingdom has got to be close. 
The kingdom's coming, and it's coming soon. But now it's time for them to behold the full mission of Jesus, what he really came to do first. And let's just say it wasn't quite what they expected. And I don't know, maybe not what you expect either. But we're going to find out. Take a closer look now. We're going to find eight descriptions of the true messianic mission. If you want to follow along, eight descriptions of the true messianic mission. And it starts off with number one, the mission is painful. Mission is painful. Look at the beginning of verse 31 again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Not ready. Just stop right there. Just don't go any further. Because already that first phrase is loaded with significance. This was new revelation. Jesus had not taught them this before. They had never heard this before. First time they're hearing something like this. That the Son of Man must suffer. Now that's not really going to have an impact on you unless you first really understand what he means by the Son of Man. That phrase, that title, Son of Man, that was his favorite designation for himself. When Jesus wanted to talk about himself, his go-to title was Son of Man. He used it more than anything else. And so we wonder why. Why does he use it? Some say it's because it highlights his humanity. And that is the case. He's the Son of Man. That's true. Another reason Jesus loved this title is because it wasn't popular. It wasn't widely used. The term Christ, which means Messiah, that was widely used. But the Jews had so misunderstood who the Christ was supposed to be. They had so much baggage attached to that title, the Christ. And that's why we've seen Jesus shy away from it. The Jews had it wrong and Jesus didn't want to be associated with their misunderstandings until he could redefine what the Christ is all about after his death and resurrection. But this other term, son of man, wasn't really used. I mean, they knew about it, but it wasn't that used that much. And so it was like a blank slate. Jesus could use this term out in public to refer to himself. And no one would really know what he was talking about. But he could use it to redefine and reprogram people as to who the Messiah really was without fear of misunderstanding. Now, the reason they didn't use this title for the Messiah too much is because it's only really found in one major passage of the Old Testament, and that's Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is well aware of this prophetic passage, and he fully intends to associate himself with the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, he has another vision, yet another vision of the future, the future kingdoms of the earth, culminating in the last days with the coming of the Son of Man, who will come in power and glory. And just listen to this. This is that coming, the coming of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. It says this, his vision. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, that is, God the Father. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's a powerful prophecy for this son of man. And 
the Jews, they did associate this title, Son of Man, with the Messiah. They knew that. But this really sums up perfectly what they were counting on the Messiah to do. This, this passage really is a perfect example of their expectations of the Messiah. Hey, when the Messiah comes, what's he going to do? In their mind, it was, it was clear. Like verse 14 says, he's going to be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. He's going to come like a conquering king and crush the nations. He's going to set up Israel as the nation of all nations. He's going to reign and rule forever with glory and power and dominion. This is what the Jews were expecting of their Messiah. This is what the disciples were expecting of their Messiah. And this is what the disciples were expecting of Jesus. They understood he's that guy. So where's the kingdom? You put this all together. We have Jesus back in market. He asked them, so who do you say that I am? And they confessed, you are the Christ. You are that one. And they were right. But in their minds, what were they associating with the Christ? They were thinking that at any moment, Jesus would bring about his dominion and glory and kingdom. It meant that pretty soon, somehow he's going to conquer the earth. He's going to set up this everlasting reign. And they'll be on top. You have to understand, the disciples, they were excited that Jesus was the Messiah because that means that Israel is going to be restored and and put back into glory, and so will they. They're going to be right there on top with Jesus in the glory, in the kingdom. And that that was exciting. But then Jesus opens his mouth, and he ruins their their dreams. Because he begins to teach them what? That the Son of Man must suffer many things. And they're thinking, wait, what? Jesus, are you sure you have that right? Those two phrases don't ever belong together. Son of Man and suffer. That that never should be equated. The Messiah, he's not going to suffer. Just read Daniel 7. There's, there's no hint of suffering. He comes, he wins. Total domination, power, glory. All the nations bow down. I mean, there's no hint of suffering in Daniel chapter 7. So what are you talking about? It, it just it doesn't make sense. It's shocking to them. And with these opening words, Jesus, he sucks the air out of their lungs. It's a real shock to their system that the Son of Man must suffer. But yes, he must This is part of the true messianic mission. Jesus is just beginning to reveal to them that the plan involves the Messiah suffering on behalf of the people. And we know that great suffering is coming his way. Not long, Jesus will be slapped, beat, punched, stripped, whipped, spat upon, taunted, mocked, forced to wear a crown of thorns, forced to carry his own cross before being nailed to it. And all that's not to mention the spiritual suffering of the wrath of God on that cross. So I think it's an understatement to say that the mission is painful. First, mission is painful. Suffering is involved in the messianic mission. I mean, to us, it's not surprising. Like we read this morning, we know about Isaiah 53, that the Messiah, he will be first a suffering servant. So we get it. But the disciples, they weren't on that wavelength at all. They were not thinking that or expecting that. They were not prepared for that. It was a real jolt to their system. But there's more. It gets worse. The second description, the mission is unorthodox. Secondly, now the mission, the messianic mission is unorthodox. Now they understand what Jesus means by 
this title, Son of Man. You're going to get the rest and how it's equally shocking. Go back to verse 31. And he began teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Once again, when they hear this, they're thinking, what? That, what? That, that can't be right. Both the action and the actors in this phrase, they just come way out of left field. And first he says the Messiah will be rejected. This word for rejected refers to something held under scrutiny, something that's examined and tested, but found unworthy, just thrown out. Imagine you had a a precious gold coin that you inherited from your grandparents they had purchased a while ago, and they said it used to be part of a a sunken pirate treasure. It was very valuable, very rare, and one day if you were in a pinch, you could sell it. You know, it was their inheritance to you. So that day came, you needed some money, so you took it to some gold experts. You're going to try and sell your gold coin. So they take it, they start examining it, this detailed process. They pull out that super magnifying glass, they're looking at all the inscriptions, they're checking the records, they're cross-referencing, this whole process. And finally, they give you the verdict after their study, their examination, and your coin is fake. It's not not real. It's not even real gold. It's a a cheap gimmick, and in fact, it's worthless. You might as well throw it out. Your coin was thoroughly examined and then thoroughly rejected. And in a similar way, Jesus was thoroughly examined, but then thoroughly rejected. And before his death, he was tested, he was analyzed, he was put on trial, cross-examined, but he was found insufficient and unworthy. He failed to meet their standards, and so he was rejected in the worst of ways. Not only is that part shocking, that Jesus is going to be rejected, but it's equally shocking when you find out who's doing the rejection. Who rejects him? And we find out that it's the Sanhedrin. Heard that word before, the Sanhedrin? Sanhedrin was the official religious court of the Jews. They met in Jerusalem. It's a group of 70 guys. They meet in Jerusalem. They judge over all the religious matters. It's like the Supreme Court of Judaism. They're composed of three groups, and Jesus mentions those three groups in the verse. They're the elders. These are the top lay leaders of Israel. You've got the priests, which included the chief priest, any previous chief priests. These guys were the Sadducees. They had the most influence and authority. And then you had the scribes. These guys were the professional interpreters of God's law. They're the lawyers. And most of them were Pharisees. But together, these men represented the official religious position of all Israel. What they said was right. Because these are are the holiest men. These these guys, they know the word so much better than us common people that they've got to be right. I mean, they know. They're the ones. All Israel looked up to them in authority and bowed down to them in respect So this is what makes their rejection of Jesus so shocking. Not only is the Messiah going to suffer, but he's going to suffer at the hands of Israel's top religious leadership. And these men, the Sanhedrin, these are supposed to be the guys who are closer to God than anyone on the planet. So how on earth could they miss and then reject 
their own Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. It's just not possible. There's no way that that could ever happen. It's just ludicrous. It's what the disciples are thinking. But once again, that, that's the mission. The Messiah's mission is unorthodox. We use the word orthodox to refer to things that are normal, conform to the norm. And if you call Judaism and Christ's day orthodox, then Jesus was very unorthodox. It's not to say that he opposed the Old Testament. No, of course not. But he had no regard for their system, their religion, their man-made traditions, which they had used to essentially usurp God's word and put themselves on the throne. Jesus had no tolerance for their religion. He opposed it and exposed their hypocrisy. So they hated him and they rejected him. And they took it one step further and they killed him. This is the third description of the messianic mission. The mission is deadly. The mission is deadly. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Now that's just outright crazy. A dead Messiah. It's impossible. In their minds, that's completely unheard of. That defeats the whole purpose of the coming of the Messiah, they thought. If if he comes and he dies, how is he going to restore Israel? How is he going to overturn Rome if he's dead? It's just, you see, it doesn't make sense in their minds. Humanly speaking, it doesn't make any sense. But according to Jesus, it's how it's going to be. He has to die. From here on out, from this point, this is the first time Jesus has revealed to them this plan. But from here on out, he will continue to tell them a little bit more and a little bit more as to what's going to happen to him when he shows up in Jerusalem. And it's not good. Later in Mark 10, in fact, if you want a page over there, it's just one page away. Mark 10, you can look at verse 33. He said to them and warned them again. Mark 10:33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Tells them a little bit more this time, but the disciples, they don't get a little bit more. They don't get it at all. It's like it goes in one ear and out the other. It's just that that can't be. They, it's like they ignore him. In fact, right after this, what happens? James and John come up to Jesus. They've got a question for him. You're thinking, oh, okay, they're going to ask him about what he just said about his death. But no, it's like they weren't even paying attention. And what's their question? Hey, Jesus, you know, when you come in glory, can we sit on your right hand and your left? I mean, I'm not sure which one was right, which one was left between James and John, but they want to be right there at the top. It's like they completely ignored the whole death and suffering part. And they're like, hey, we want to be up there with you at the very, very top when you come back. Is that okay? But they fail to understand everything. And Jesus lets them know that essentially the cross comes before the crown and suffering precedes glory, both for him and for them. There's no shortcut to glory for them either, as they would painfully learn much later. But that's the plan. They, They still don't get it, but that's the plan. He has to die. Messianic mission is painful. It's unorthodox. It's deadly. 
You may wonder, though, does he really have to die? I mean, is there any other way? The answer is no. The mission is necessary. That's the fourth description. Number four, the mission is necessary. This comes again from verse 31, but notice the emphasis. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Notice there's no option here. This is not something that may happen to Jesus if he doesn't play his cards right. This this is going to happen. This will happen. This must happen. It's a necessity. There's no other way. You might ask, why? What's what's the big deal? Why is it necessary for Jesus to die? Why, why does he have to die? And there are many answers to that question. How would you answer that question? Do you have an answer for that question? Why does he have to die? You could say that Christ's death is necessary because of the love of God. God loves us, his creation, but we are so lost and cut off that the only chance of being restored to him is by the atoning death of Jesus. You could say Christ's death is necessary because of the justice of God. God wants to redeem us, but he can't tolerate our sin. He can't look the other way. He has to judge, but to redeem, he's provided a perfect substitute sacrifice to pay on our behalf. You could say Christ's death is necessary because of prophecy. There's countless verses that tell of who the Messiah would be, what he would do. We read Isaiah 53 of Psalm 22 and more. God's word cannot be overturned. He's already let it be known. And you could say that Christ's death is necessary because of God's own will. Before the foundation of the world, this plan was laid out. It was determined and then set in motion. And you can't stop God. He's going to bring about the death of Jesus for his own glory. And in reality, Christ's journey to the cross, it doesn't begin here in Mark chapter 8. It began before the foundation of the world. And you might also wonder, though, what's, what's the big deal about dying? Why does he have to die? What's so glorious about dying? I mean, how is that the plan? That sounds like a defeat, not a victory. That sounds like a bad plan if you end up dying in the end. And I'd have to agree with you if that were the whole plan. But that's not the whole plan. The plan is successful in the end because Jesus doesn't stay dead. And that's what makes his mission victorious. And it is. Number five, the mission is victorious. Mission is victorious. Finally, we get to the end of verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Most of the Jews, except the Sadducees, believed in resurrection, but they thought it happened at the very, very end, the end of days. They never thought of resurrection before that, and they certainly never associated resurrection with the Messiah because that would mean the Messiah would have to die first. And that was inconceivable. But this was the case. Jesus had to die on the cross because the wages of sin is death. And if he's going to pay for our sins, he's got to pay our penalty. And that is death. He was a sacrifice given over for us, spiritually bearing the weight of our sins. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So he paid our price. But being the Son of God, he was victorious over death. Death couldn't hold him. Couldn't keep him down. 
which also was part of the plan. Remember, Peter, in his first sermon after Pentecost, after they figured it all out, what did he say? Acts chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. He speaks about Jesus and he says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. We read earlier that passage in Daniel chapter 7 which speaks of the Son of Man coming back in glory. And, and don't get me wrong, don't misunderstand, that's, that's still true. Jesus, he's not overturning that prophecy. He's just making it clear to the disciples the order of events, namely that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, it's got to come before the Son of Man comes in that glory. We can say it again simply, the cross has to come before the crown. Otherwise, there's not going to be anyone in the kingdom. But don't misunderstand, there will be a crown. Jesus is victorious. He will return in glory. He will judge. He will reign over all. That is Still true because he is victorious. Before his death, he revealed to his disciples that although he was going to die, it's not the end. It's not the end of his story. He says in Mark chapter 13, verse 26, that the day will come when all will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He knows, and it's going to happen. The power and the glory, they are still the mission. And they're coming. This is a lot to take in. The disciples, they had not heard this before. This was new. This was shocking. He's talking about dying and rising and suffering. It just it doesn't compute. They don't get it. But it's not, it's not his fault that they don't get it. Because he was being clear. He was being very clear about all of this. And that's our, our sixth description of the messianic mission. The mission is clear. It's very clear. And you see it very simply in verse 32. It says, And he was stating the matter plainly. That in itself is quite shocking because Jesus wasn't really known for stating matters plainly. Instead, most of the time, he revealed truth through parables and riddles and metaphors and analogies. That's why this little verse stands out because so far, Jesus, he has never spoken about his death plainly. He's talked about it, but in a riddle, in a parable, in a metaphor, and nobody understood. I'll give you some examples. Mark chapter 2, verse 20, he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John chapter 3, verse 14, he says, as Moses, was lifted, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. These are all references to his death. But nobody understood what he was talking about. He's using these metaphors and parables and people, they're not following him. They're not thinking about that. But here in Mark chapter 8, no more of that. There's no riddle here. There's no parable or metaphor. It's very straightforward, very clear, very literal. The Son of Man will suffer. Literally. He will be rejected. Literally. He will be killed. Literally. 
And He will rise again. Literally. This may be new to them. This may be hard for them to take, but you can't say He wasn't clear. You can't say He didn't warn them. After the resurrection, when everything became clear to them, they would kick themselves for not seeing how obvious this was. Like, of course. Why didn't we see it earlier? But here in Mark chapter 8, they're too busy stumbling and tripping over the scandal of the cross. But that's really to be expected because that too is part of the mission. Number seven, the mission is stumbling. The Messianic mission is stumbling. People will stumble over it. We see this exemplified by Peter in verse 32. Even though Jesus was stating the matter plainly, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter had had enough. They had just confessed with confidence that despite what the world says, they believe he's the Christ. In fact, Peter is the one who stepped up and voiced that confession. He believed in Jesus, and Jesus accepted his belief. He blessed him for it. He said, you are blessed because of that. But in the very next breath, Jesus proceeds to explain to them what the Christ must do. He told them the true messianic mission. But then he starts talking about suffering and being rejected and dying. And to Peter and the disciples, this was akin to Jesus saying that he wasn't the Messiah. That's how much they refused to associate the concepts of suffering and the Messiah. <clears throat> it's, it's almost like to them, hearing Jesus say this, it's like he was just denying being the Messiah. So Peter had to step in and say something. Maybe Jesus was having a bad day. Maybe this is a momentary lapse. The Messiah, he surely won't suffer and die. That's not going to happen. Jesus, don't you know? So Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And the picture is that he interrupted Jesus to, to say this, to do this. Now that's not uh, usually a smart move. Take Jesus aside and begin to rebuke him. You can expect something harsh to come right back at you. But what's really going on behind the scenes, why does Peter do this? Ultimately, it's simply because he is the first Jew who is stumbling over the stumbling block of the cross. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23? Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. Put that together. Christ crucified. And to Jews... It's a stumbling block to Gentiles, foolishness. Christ crucified. Gentiles, you know, non-Jews, they just think that's dumb. Like, well, what kind of a plan is that? You send your Savior and he ends up dying as a criminal on a cross in the most shameful way? That's just a dumb plan. It doesn't make sense. To Gentiles, it's foolishness. To Jews, it's not foolish. It's a stumbling block. They're Christ crucified. It requires them to believe that their Christ died the most shameful death possible, that he didn't come with glory and power. It's so utterly inconsistent with everything their religion and their traditions told them to believe. Of course, the problem was with their religion and their traditions. And don't confuse that with the Old Testament, because at the time, those had become two different things. Their man-made traditions had overturned really God's word instead of searching the scriptures carefully about who the Messiah will really be and what he will really do, they just went by what seemed right in their own eyes. Instead, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, 
It says, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To Gentiles today, the cross, it's still foolishness. And to Jews, it's still a stumbling block. But it's the only way. Humanly speaking, a dead Messiah on the cross does sound dumb and foolish. And what kind of a plan is that? But when you realize that he was dying the death that you deserved to die in order to give you the life that you don't deserve to live, then you see it makes sense. You see what God was doing with Jesus on that cross. And then the cross actually becomes the greatest expression of the power of God and the wisdom of God in all history. It's through the cross, chapter 127 of 1 Corinthians says, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And that's why we boast in Him, verse 30 says. Some people, they will always stumble over the cross because it doesn't fit their humanistic way of thinking and because they haven't been given eyes to see. And if that is perhaps you this morning, I pray that just like Jesus touched the eyes of the blind man right before this and enabled him to see, that he enables you to see the beauty of the cross and to believe. Otherwise, you will continue to oppose Many people still do oppose the cross, oppose the mission. That can't be helped. Even that is a part of the mission. Lastly, number eight, final description from this passage of the messianic mission. The mission is opposed. The mission is opposed. I'll finish off of verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked, Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. This is such a complete turnaround. Just minutes before this, Peter hit a high point in his career. He was on top. He confessed Jesus as the Christ. Jesus pronounced him blessed. I mean, he was there. He's number one. But in the very next sentence, mere seconds later, He hits a low point, and Jesus calls him Satan. That's not good. That can't be good. Can I just really quick throw in here that this verse, this little verse, is a simple but very profound proof of the authenticity of the New Testament. Some people want to claim that the story of Jesus is all just made up by the early church and their rise to power. But one thing's for sure, if they were making this all up, they would never have their champion, the Apostle Peter, be called Satan by Jesus. It would never be made up. It's so crazy, it has to be true. And Peter here, before, he interrupted Jesus to rebuke him. Now Jesus returns the favor. He looks at the disciples, because they're they're standing in Peter's corner. Peter represented them in his confession. He represented them in his rebuke. They all thought Jesus was a little off when he was talking about this suffering and and death stuff. So Jesus delivers a counter-rebuke for all of them, but primarily at Peter. And he says to him, Get behind me, Satan. 
That sounds a little harsh. I'm talking about shocking. That's unexpected. Why is Jesus saying this? What what does he mean by this? Well, first off, he's not saying that Peter is possessed by Satan. It's not the case. Later, Satan would possess one of the disciples, Judas, at the cross. But that's not what's going on here. Rather, Peter, by opposing Christ's appointment with the cross, he's acting like the adversary. And that's what the word Satan means after all. It means adversary. Peter is unknowingly aligning himself with the great adversary, Satan. Because right at this moment, he is standing in the way of Christ getting to the cross. And that's something only Satan and those who are his do. Peter's acting as if he knows what's best, not God. He knows what the Messiah is supposed to do, not Jesus. He's trying to play God. He's trying to tell Jesus what he needs to do. But when you try and play, G- when you try and play God, rather, you only end up playing Satan. And the whole scene is very reminiscent of Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. If you remember, part of that temptation, Satan promised Jesus all the glory in the world if he would just bow down. And the essence of that temptation was for Jesus to get the glory and skip the cross. You just skip the suffering, forget all that. You just, just get the glory. And Peter was essentially presenting the same temptation in a way. He's saying to Jesus, you know, far be it from you to suffer and to die. You're the Messiah. You're supposed to come in glory and power. Just, just take it. Bring the glory. You don't, you're not going to suffer and die. But that wasn't the plan. That wasn't the Father's will. That wasn't the path of redemption. It couldn't be. So Jesus had to rebuff the temptation and that's what he did he says go satan get behind me much like what he said to satan in the wilderness and with this rebuke jesus delivers to the disciples in the sharpest way possible that his path to the cross can't be stopped and woe is them if they stand in the way the mission will be opposed satan opposes it demons oppose it unbelievers oppose it all to their demise. But this train, it, it can't be stopped. And so it's best to get out of the way. Or better, to go with Jesus, not against him. Is that true of you? Are you with Jesus on that way to the cross? Or are you against him? Do you, like he said to Peter, set your mind on your own interests or on God's? For Peter and the disciples, as hard as all this was to believe, they should have just accepted Christ's revelation because, especially if they really believed he was the Messiah, but they were too consumed and preoccupied with with their will, their plans, their vision for the future, like so many people today. Like I said, those in the world, they were always going to think that the way of God, the plan of God is foolishness. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. doesn't make sense. I mean, how dumb is this plan? God sent this Savior to save his people, but he ends up dying on a cross. It's just it's a failure. It doesn't make sense. And the early Romans, they had a field day in ridiculing the Christians who had a Savior who died in the most shameful way possible. But as verse 18 continues, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Because we know 
what was happening on that cross. Though His death was shameful, it was our shame that He was bearing. It was our sin He was paying for. In our new life, He was securing. And that was His mission. And in the end, we learn that to be saved by that mission, it's not enough just to confess that Jesus is the Christ, like Peter just did. Yeah, that's necessary, but that's not quite enough. What do you mean by the Christ? You must also accept and confess the Christ's mission and his work, his death, his resurrection. You have to realize that the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus are both part and parcel with the gospel. They are intertwined. It is who he is, the God-man, the divine Savior, that enabled him to do the divine work of atonement on the cross. So you must come to understand and trust both who he is and what he came to do. I was sharing the gospel with the guy the other day. He's a solicitor, came by the church to, to, sell, to sell me dental insurance or something. So I turned around on him and shared the gospel with him. And so I asked him the same old diagnostic question, ask everybody, you know, if you were to die today and stand before God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And this person, he claimed to be a Christian, grew up in the church, knew knew lots of data, knew who Jesus was, but his answer was, didn't really know. Wasn't really sure, fumbled around a little bit and just had a hard time coming up with anything, a little bit of works, but just didn't didn't really know. And he was happy for me to tell him, and I did, The reason I like this question so much is that it shows what a person is trusting in. When you ask that question, whatever answer just pops into your head, that's what you are trusting in. That's what you are counting on to save you. That's your answer. If you're a true believer, though, that answer, it should be a no-brainer. It should pop right into your head. Why? Because you are actively trusting it. You're not passively trusting it. It's not like, oh, I learned it you know, in middle school camp. And it's in the past, I trusted back then, but not today. Now, if you're saved, that means you are actively trusting in the gospel to save you. And you don't have to think, just you know, because every day you're trusting in it. It's like imagine you're in a shipwreck and you're going to drown, but you find this life preserver. So you cling on to that thing for dear life. You're just desperately clinging to that life preserver. For three days, you're floating at sea, being tossed around, and your only hope is just holding on to that life preserver. And finally, three days later, you're rescued. And the rescuers ask you, like, how'd you do it? How'd you stay afloat in this storm for three days? What saved you? And apart from God, the answer just, it's obvious. Like, you know, well, this life preserver saved me. I mean, I was holding on to it for three days. You don't have to think about that answer. You don't have to search for that answer. You know it, and you'll never forget it because it saved you. And how could you ever forget that which saved you? And for Christians, it should be the same. Jesus is our life preserver, only we never let him go. And if you're saved, if you're genuinely saved, that by definition means right now you are actively and desperately clinging to him to save you. That's the only thing that can, and you know it. You know who he is, you know what he's done, and you're banking on that with everything you have to keep you afloat. That's all you have. So if someone asks you, you know, hey, what, what saves you? It's not a trick question. 
It's not a hard answer. You know immediately because it's saving you right now, and it will. So it's my challenge to you to know and to count on what you believe. Some people, they know what they believe, but they don't really count on it. It's true that the story of Jesus, it's not shocking to us anymore. Not surprising. We know what happens. We've, we've heard the story many times. And for some people, these truths have become so familiar that they've lost their impact. It doesn't affect their daily lives. Take them for granted. But don't forget what an amazing redemption God purchased for us through this cross, this messianic mission. Sadly, the truths that we hear the most are most prone to being forgotten or ignored. But don't let that happen. Don't forget the shocking power and wisdom of God through Jesus on the cross. Let's pray. Our glorious God in heaven, we, we lift up your name, name above all names, for, for this plan of redemption thought long ago, before the world was, you planned this out. And we have beheld your wisdom this morning. Only God could imagine this and carry it out with precision, make it come to pass. Viewed from a human perspective, Lord, anyone dying on the cross is, is just, that's the end. Death is the end. It's foolishness. How could the Savior die on the cross? But we know his death was purposeful. It was to pay for our sin as he bore the weight of our spiritual guilt on the cross. By that we can be forgiven. And his death was not the end. And he rose from the, the dead conquering death and offering now eternal life. This, this is the wisdom and the power of God. And I pray that all of us here, genuinely from the heart, know this, confess this, and count on this. This is what saves It's not goodness, it's not good works, it's not coming to church, reading the Bible. It is confidence and faith in that person, in that mission. We thank you always for giving us time in your word to behold your your truth more and more. And I, I pray we keep the shock value fresh in our minds. And what a shocking thing it is, even more so, that you would that you would redeem it all. We were so unworthy, so lost in our sin, so undeserving of redemption. The fact that you even did anything to save is shocking, but so we are so thankful for it. We love you. You are precious to us. May we live as if you are precious to us in your gospel and be changed as a result as we leave from here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.